Welcome back. One of the things I love about being part of our church is that we're part of something much bigger. We're part of the advanced movement. I already mentioned in the intro how we prayed together this week, a national day of prayer. But where it comes much closer to home is couples who have been like mothers and fathers in our midst. The real goal for us in terms of being part of the advanced movement is just the reality of the relationships that we have and the access that we have to these men and women to really walk with us. It's not from a far, far distant place. It's they walk with us through so many things. And so this week, Lex and Joe came through and had dinner with Kate and I. And it was just amazing to see them again in person and to laugh and have fun. But we were talking about Alpha and what God is doing and what they've been preaching on in Jubilee. And they've been doing a series through Ephesians. And we were speaking about um, where we're at currently with Alpha. And this last week, many of you in the Alpha course would have done uh, How to Resist Evil and speaking through that topic. And Lex shared a preach with me that he did a few weeks ago, which just really resonated on many levels around who Jesus really was, what it really was when he came to earth, as well as how we resist evil and how we stand. And so this is a, a message that Lex has done. Um, and we asked if we could use for us this morning. And so enjoy. Well, Hello again, and we're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 6, 10 to 18. Good morning, One Hope. This morning's reading is from Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. I'm speaking today on verses 16 and 17, but you might be thinking, what, do you guys really believe that there's a devil? So let me set the context a little bit in terms of the supernatural. This text reminds us that we need the armor for a reason. Um, in the Christian life, it's not just you and God. There's more, there's this additional element there's an intruder in our garden. There's a thief. There's one who is wily and powerful, but who can be overcome. There's a devil. The Bible teaches that as a reality. And Paul shows us that in Christ, under the sovereignty of God, we can be strong, we can stand, and we can triumph. God has good plans for us. And although the devil's not equal to God, He's a schemer. He has schemes, plans versus schemes. Plans are understandable. If we set them out, we can see them. They help us win. Schemes are kind of sneaky. 
They're complicated. There's lots of small print. If you've ever had the misfortune of uh, trying to uh, make a medical claim with your insurance, you'll understand why we call them medical aid schemes. Seriously, seriously though, any worldview, including a Christian worldview, which excludes the reality of the devil and evil spirits is just simply unbiblical, sub-biblical perhaps. Any explanation that insists on excluding the supernatural has actually been shaped more by secular thinking than by the Bible. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about this passage saying this, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. Jesus didn't come only teaching new and wonderful principles. He also cast out demons and healed the sick. There was a a significant supernatural aspect to his ministry. No one can question that Jesus is presented to us as a miracle worker who overthrows the powers of darkness. Some 40% of Mark's gospel involves miracles. It's a significant error to represent Jesus without emphasizing his ability to overcome the power of evil. The combination of both his teaching ministry and his miraculous works gives us the full picture. And that's the full picture we see in all four Gospels and which is repeatedly asserted throughout the rest of the New Testament. Hallelujah, Jesus is Lord. It's also false to represent the growth of the church, the New Testament church, apart from the working of miracles and of supernatural power. Here, right here in Ephesus, where this letter is going to, the gospel, when it first arrived, came not as an academic paper delivered by Paul for peer review, not at all. Luke, a diligent historian himself, tells us that in addition to the preaching and teaching, quote, God was performing extraordinary miracles. This is a description of what happened happened in Ephesus, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. In fact, it's not only that the biblical gospel expels spirits, evil spirits from individuals, but the lordship of Jesus Christ actually challenged the reigning religious power of that city, Ephesus, the worship of Artemis. And it was a strong reaction. This was evangelism and this is spiritual warfare. This was principalities and powers being overthrown by the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's wrong to represent the growth of the early church without putting power encounters at the center of the story, which is exactly where the Bible puts them. It's false also. It's it's just unbiblical to suggest that we can somehow win the world to Jesus, whether it's the West or the East or the North or here in the South, without this supernatural power. Resistance to the idea of the reality of the supernatural is actually a minority view globally, but it kind of thrust itself forward with authority. Craig Keener, in his brilliant two-volume work called Miracles 
the credibility of the New Testament accounts, points out that we, he quote, we have frequently embraced anti-supernaturalism as simply an automatic, unexamined assumption. But it reflects a specific cultural setting. Keener explains that it's the assertion uh, of um, a small but nevertheless influential subculture of Western culture, namely academia. Anti-supernaturalism or naturalism is assumed to be the default position of the educated. Keener writes this, some early modern theologians, including, including Rudolf Bultmann, insisted that mature modern people do not believe in miracles and that no one can or does seriously maintain such early Christian perspectives. Keener writes, Bultmann, however, unwittingly excluded from the modern world the majority of the world's population. A significant amount of Jesus' work and of subsequent New Testament ministry involved direct acts of supernatural power. Power encounters, healing the sick, casting out demons. Watchman Nee had reason to criticize the Western missionaries who came to China. They had theological knowledge, he said, but they couldn't cast out a demon. Watchman Nee wasn't against education. Uh, he'd authored numerous books himself, but he was right to believe that the reality of spiritual warfare wasn't a cultural emphasis, nor the uh, remnant, if you like, of an uneducated past, but a present spiritual reality. And that's what we find here in this passage in Ephesians chapter 6. It wonderfully helps us to both discern and navigate the reality of spiritual warfare, of the evil day, as Paul says. Now, having said all of that, by way of context, let's not forget what Martin Luther said. He said, sometimes you fall off the horse one way, and in your eagerness to, to correct yourself, you get back up on the horse, and you fall over on the other side as well. It's wrong to presume that every sickness or disorder or anguish of heart or of mind is then automatically the work of the devil. Jesus often healed the sick by just rebuking the sickness, by commanding the sickness to go, or by merely granting sight to the blind. How wonderful is that? Without any reference to demonic influence. So we aren't therefore those who are going to become obsessed with trying, you know, spotting demons everywhere. You are a responsible being. You are protected by God. We come to that. The devil doesn't have a free hand. Yeah, sure. He prowls around looking for, like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. But Peter says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. It's not easy for the devil to dominate a person's life or mind. And you as a Christian shouldn't live in fear because for this simple reason, you are in Christ. And listen, think about it. If you are in Christ, you are in the safest place in the universe. There's literally no safer place that you could be than in Christ Jesus. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. How wonderful that is. And this chapter shows us how to stand firm in the faith by putting on God's armor. So let's just quickly look at the armor itself. There are six pieces and, and as well as the exhortation to pray, which we're going to look at next week. Uh, these are divinely powerful gifts 
given to us for our protection against a strong enemy. These are, these are pieces of God's armor. It's the armor of God which we take up and which then shapes our behavior. We looked at the three, first three pieces of God's armor last week. We looked at the belt of truth buckled around our waist, the wonderful, the truth that sets us free. We need to know it. We need to declare it. We need to live like it. We looked at the breastplate of righteousness, the wonderful, impenetrable righteousness of Christ that is imputed to me, that is fitted onto me, that protects my heart and my soul and enables me to live joyfully according to the Spirit of God. And then we looked at the boots of peace. I nearly said the beats of peace, the peace beats, the boots of peace enabling us to share the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The boots of peace help us to establish peace between God and people and peace between people and one another. It makes us peacemakers as, uh, as we heard last week. So verses 16 and 17 read, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield of faith which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, as with the first three pieces of armor, so with these three, the key idea here is you need to know the word of God. You need knowledge. You need to know the truth. The time to start seriously reading your Bible is now. Don't wait for the day of battle or the day of evil, as Paul says in verse 13, to figure out the strategy or to learn how to use the weapons. Every soldier in an effective army goes through hours and hours of detailed, careful, specific training. He needs to know his weapons thoroughly. He needs to be able to understand what, the, what a problem might be, troubleshoot, and then fix that problem under pressure. He, 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 uh, he, he's in a unit of soldiers together, and a unit of soldiers will practice drills and communication, endurance, strategy, weapons deployment very thoroughly in advance. By the time they get to the battlefield, their responses should be almost second nature. And a good troop will work predictably and in a disciplined way so that if something unpredictable happens, they don't all go to pieces and lose the plot and run this way and that. Don't wait until the enemy is firing on you and missiles are flying all around you to learn how to use the weapons. If you don't know what God says, you will be vulnerable to error. You'll be tempted to find relief in the wrong things. And you could be taken out fairly easily. So again, I appeal to you once again, make a plan to read the whole Bible. Get a real physical Bible and, and work through every book. You can jump back through the, to the old, to the new, back and forth. But for your own sake, for your soul's sake, read the whole Bible. It's good to read books about the Bible, of course it is, but seriously, I rebuke you in the name of Tim Keller, or I rebuke you in the name of Beth Moore. It's not gonna work, it's not gonna work. When Jesus was tempted to satisfy his hunger in the wilderness, he did, his response to the temptation wasn't, well, different rabbis have had different views on, on these things. He didn't say, well, no, Socrates argued that true satisfaction is, is achieved through moral virtue, that's what happiness is. How did he respond? 
It is written. It is written. Three times we're told the devil tried to tempt him to disrupt God's plan. Three times Jesus answered, it is written. Now, you and I may not fully understand this, but there is real power in the word of God. It's not only our understanding of the word, that obviously is important, but in the accounts of Jesus' temptation in Matthew and Luke 4, both in chapters 4 of those two gospels, Jesus quotes Bible verses. He declares them. So listen, as you're reading your Bible, if God speaks to you, write it down, write it down, learn God's word. Because a knowledge of God's word is actually the unifying principle behind the armor of God as we read it in Ephesians 6. It's knowing the truth. It's knowing what the gospel is and how it defends you and how it protects you. So Paul says, take up your shield. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You are to apply faith, the shield of faith, to your situation. You take God's word and you put it up in front of you. And what do you do? You hide behind it. That's what you do. You hide behind it. The fiery darts mustn't hit me. They must hit what God says is true of me. And they are extinguished by it. The word that Paul uses for shield here isn't for that little round shield. It's Captain America. He's got a little round shield, doesn't he? No, no. This is that huge thing that looks a little bit like a door. It's a big rectangular one and it covers the whole person. Put up the shield of faith. I stand behind the massive shield of what God says is true about me. That's not unreality. That is applying the truth of God's word to your life and believing it. Bible teacher Priscilla Shira says, faith is acting like what God says is true. So you lift up the shield of faith And you're declaring what God says is true, is true. It is written. Now, flaming arrows come in. What are these flaming arrows? John Stott mentions several. I'm sure there's many more. But he calls them unsought for thoughts. Thoughts that come in as a surprise. I wasn't thinking that, but in it comes. Ways of thinking, suggestions that you don't want. And they're often unexpected. He names a few. A sudden doubt that seems overwhelming. And some doubts are very clearly, cleverly articulated. Put up the shield of faith. Faith comes by knowing the word of God, not by typing your doubt into YouTube and hoping that somehow you'll get a good answer. No, go to the Bible for your answer. A sudden prompting to disobedience, he says, suddenly comes in. Just do, just do it, just do what's wrong, just do it. That could lead to lust, it could lead to outbursts of anger. Just, just, just say it. Just go for it. Outbursts of anger that do much more harm than they do good. It could be a suspicion suddenly breaking in, where uh, in the workplace, say, oh, that person's always this, that person. Or in families, it happens sometimes. It, it's a flaming arrow. You get these long-running battles, feuds in families sometimes that kind of explode sometimes at funerals or over inheritance issues and all of that. Listen, if you allow mistrust or suspicion to gain a foothold in your thinking, it can morph into malice. 
You're just waiting to catch that person out. These are fiery darts. Another big one that he mentions is fear. Fear comes and paints an ever-increasingly bad picture of what could go wrong. And if you let your guard down, fear will take you on a wonderful tour of the worst-case scenario. And the devil will just sit back and enjoy watching you get increasingly nervous, make terrible decisions, destroy relationships, or trap you into unhealthy coping mechanisms. What's happened here? A fiery dart has got through the defenses. Another one is accusation. Steve mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. It's a common one. In Revelations 12, we're told that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses you. He'll remind you of when you did something bad. And he'll accuse you of a wrong motive when you do something good. You do this, you're no good. You did that, you're still no good. Christianity, he says, works for other people. But it doesn't work for you, does it? Not really, so just give it up. What is that? That's a fiery dart. I was talking about the, these things to someone this week, and they said, well, what about dreams and nightmares? Stra you know, this, that's kind of not even, I'm not even awake when that happens. The Bible tends to highlight dreams in a positive way, generally speaking, as a legitimate way which uh, God speaks to people. And because that's how the Bible presents dreams, often in the, in the, particularly in the Old Testament story, even actually in the New Testament as well, because of that, sometimes when a Christian remembers their dream, they might think to themselves, well, I wonder if God is trying to speak to me through, through that. That's not wrong to think, to think that. But this is where a spiritual gift that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12 is extremely helpful, and it's the gift of discerning of spirits, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, or distinguishing between spirits. Essentially, there are three possible sources to consider. The flesh, you know, is this just working in my mind? Is it memory? Is it because I saw a film or whatever? Or my own will? Or is it something that I ate? Or some other kind of physiological cause? Is it the flesh? Is it the devil? Well, is it accusatory? Does it bring confusion? <clears throat> or is it the Lord? And in Paul's discussion of the New Testament gift of prophecy, he tells us how to discern in the new covenant whether God is speaking. Now, obviously, the main way God speaks to us is through Scripture. <laughs> That's really what the whole of this message is about. But he says about the gift of prophecy, this is how to discern if God is speaking through a prophetic word. The one who prophesies speaks to people, as opposed to tongues, which is to God, speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So in discerning whether a prophecy is God speaking, the same can be applied to dreams or in combination with this discerning of spirits gift. Is it strengthening? Yes. Is it encouraging? Is it comforting? I think that's a good grid through which to evaluate these things. In my own experience, just before I became a Christian, I had a dream that strongly encouraged me to follow Christ. And I did. There are many testimonies of Muslims who have had dreams which point them to Jesus. The brain is obviously a complex thing and the brain is of course active during sleep I have on occasion woken up laughing 
not often, but it's a delicious thing to wake up laughing, even if you can't. But a nightmare it is, it can scare you. It seems horrible. And my own response to nightmares is to dismiss them and thank God that in reality, he is sovereign. The basis of all horror stories, whether it's movies or novels, is the absence, the fictional absence of the sovereignty of God. It's the the absence of the overarching umbrella of God's providence under which we evaluate things as being normal. In a horror movie, that's taken away. That's what makes it horror, that the sovereignty of God isn't really there. If you've had a bad dream that unsettles you, let it prompt you towards the Bible. And if it's like an issue, a recurring or repetitive issue, then ask a Christian friend, to a trusted, mature Christian friend, to pray with you. When a flaming arrow hits, it is always a shock. And it burns, doesn't it, for a while. Warfare's like that. The accounts of men in battle during the First World War are absolutely harrowing. They knew they were in a war, but when your comrade is suddenly killed stone dead by a a single bullet or is choking to death on nerve gas because they couldn't get the gas mask on in time, the shock of the reality of it became for many absolutely paralyzing. They called it shell shock. Many men who returned from both world wars actually and other wars never spoke of what they had to endure or of what they saw. Don't get blasé with spiritual warfare. Don't think that somehow you're an exception. Paul warns, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall in 1 Corinthians 1. You're more likely to think, oh, it's that person or it's that group of people. But don't forget, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. So be resolute. And when a dart comes at you, defend yourself with God's word. Put up the shield of faith. Declare the truth. Declare it. Speak it out. But also be mature and sober in your understanding of God's word. 1 Corinthians 2 uh, verse 10, Paul writes... For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses or strongholds. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This armor, these weapons are divinely powerful. God's truth can destroy strongholds, even well-established patterns of evil, whether religious or not. The Bible says the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Paul says we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So when a flaming arrow comes in, you take it captive. I use the more literal New American standard there because that particular translation, that more close translation, helps me apply it in two different ways. First of all, it tells me that this thought can be tested against the truth of Jesus. You don't just accept every negative thought, but you can test it, identify it, and if necessary, reject it in the light of the Bible. 
And secondly, I can take it captive to the obedience of Christ. I want to take a lie by the scruff of the neck and I want to nail it to the cross of Christ. Take the lie to the cross and nail it there. Let me illustrate. C.H. Spurgeon said, the devil says, you are no saint. Well, says Spurgeon, if I'm not, then I'm a sinner. And Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Sink or swim, I go to him. He takes the thought to the obedience of Jesus. If accusation or condemnation are paralyzing you, go to the cross. It is written, the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Or if it's fear or a sense of abandonment, no, Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that I will not be forsaken. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By putting up the promises of God and taking each wicked thought captive, you are holding up the shield of faith. You are extinguishing the flaming arrows of the evil one and you are setting yourself up to live in joyful obedience to Christ your Lord. So, Take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then take up your helmet. Paul says, take the helmet of salvation. Now, the helmet was so strong that really, and heavy, and it was kind of padded, obviously, as well, but really only an axe, you know, at close range could get through. And very often they had visors as well to protect the faith. Michael Eaton says, uh, the face, Michael Eaton says, the helmet is our sure and certain knowledge that in this battle, victory is certain. This piece, like all the others, is about knowing the truth, but it draws particular attention to the importance of the mind in the Christian life. How you think is important. Like the psalmist, you should preach to yourself. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Psalm 42, Psalm 103, praise the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. You can correct yourself. The human mind is sophisticated enough that it can self-correct. We are to love the Lord our God with all our mind. You're not at the mercy of random thoughts. Let your mind dwell on the breadth of this great salvation, this hope that you have in Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. The hope of our salvation is like a helmet. You're in a battle now, but you're not always going to be in this battle. The hope of rest and of victory is certain. Christianity should produce a positive sense of the future. Because of Christ, we're not alarmists retreating from culture like an embattled remnant. No, we're full of hope with generous hearts, with largesse in our spirits. When you encounter us, you should encounter a people filled with joy and confidence because of the hope that is before us. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Revelation 12, was quoted earlier as well, says that the saints triumphed over the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Tell your story. This is your testimony. Psalm 56, verse 9, This I know, God is for me. 
Stand in the salvation that God has provided for you. Trust in it. Be still and know that he is your God. Now, the gospel provides tremendous peace of mind. But as pastors, we're also aware that some mental health challenges might not be merely spiritual. They're not spiritual necessarily. may, in fact, be physical in nature. And just as with any other physical difficulty, God's way of providing may well be through the excellence of medical professionals. I mean, we thank God, don't we, even during this COVID, this season of COVID-19 infections, that God has provided gifted frontline healthcare workers. That's not unbelief. That's God's provision. That's God's provision. And just like a person who might need a ventilator to get, help them get the right amount of oxygen, there may be a season where you may need medical help to get you through and back to stability mentally. There should be absolutely no stigma or shame attached to the need of that kind of medical assistance as opposed to any other kind of medical assistance. If you just can't get enough oxygen, then there should be help for you. What Paul is describing here are the typical features of spiritual warfare encountered by all Christians everywhere. If you want more on the health of the mind and of our thinking from a a scriptural perspective, David Holden's book, The Battle for the Mind, may be a great place to start. And finally, the sword of the Spirit. Take up your sword, says Paul, which is the word of God. Before he, he mentions prayer, Paul gives us the final piece of armor in this battle metaphor, and it's the weapon of attack. When we need to push back, well, we push back with our shield, we'll push back with our boots and everything. But when we need to push back, like Jesus, we quote scripture. We use God's words, as I've said already, words that are sharper than any double-edged sword. It is written, still works today. He doesn't argue ideas with other ideas when he's tempted. No one set of ideas with Uh, not one set of ideas against another set of ideas. He declares scripture to the law and to the testimony, they used to say. He goes to the Bible itself. He's using the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and so should you, and so should I. So let me end with some biblical confessions to strengthen your soul and which you could use in the future and which you can verbalize. I'm putting this all in the first person, but... You might even want to stand up and declare them with me as I agree in prayer. These are some of the things that are true of us in Christ. I was dead in my sin, but God made me alive together with Christ. He took me out of Adam and put me into Christ. God has blessed me in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He knew me before I knew him. He saw me before I saw him. He first loved me. He chose me. He adopted me. I am a child of God. I have been born again. I am a new creation in Christ. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. I am no longer a slave, but I'm now a son, a child of God and an heir. And the spirit of God's son witnesses with my spirit that I am a child of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for me because I am in Christ. 
I have received an abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness so that I can reign in life through Jesus Christ. This I know, that my God is for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? Nothing can separate me from the love of God. I am complete in Christ. He is with me. He is for me. I am my beloved's and he is mine. My life is hidden with Christ in God, both now and forever, world without end, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen and amen. Beloved saints of Jesus, his chosen, his longed for, his loved, when we get to heaven, we will be given robes. We will be given robes. But right now, we wear armour. We put the armour of God on today and we stand. A day of rest and ease is coming where no battle is and where no armour is necessary. But right now, we wake, we sleep, we live, we love in this armour of God. Put it on so that you may stand your ground. And having done everything, to stand firm. Amen.